Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris and Beth Barnes at Chris James Cellars. Uh, it's August 30th, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, we'll start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Well, um, I've been very interested in the wine industry since uh, early 20s or so. My, my 20s. <laughs> and... Uh, um, yeah, I got interested in, in wine because uh, I used to work for a company in Florida and they would always take us out to these expensive dinners and, and this same group of guys would go out and they would buy uh, expensive bottles of wine and I wasn't really interested in wine, didn't like wine at the time and, and I would notice after a while they kept buying the same bottles of wine and uh, so uh, as being kind of a contrarian myself, I would, I would challenge them to try different things. And, and over time, that became that uh, I, w- I became the wine expert by, by uh, forcing them to try different things and, and, um, and then researching the wines. And I started to get more and more interested in it at that point. And um, so... You know, after several years, I started to really dive in and uh, research wines from all around the world. And then I moved away and went to to college, and I started to uh, learn about wine on a budget. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I tried a huge range of different wines, and then I started buying books about. Uh, uh, planting a vineyard and, and what it's like to run a vineyard and that was my primary interest for several years um, meanwhile I, I graduated school I had uh, got a master's in engineering and as well as uh, master's in business administration and um, went off to work for several years and and um, um, at that point I started looking for properties and so we found this wonderful property here in uh, Carlton, and um, we uh, put an offer in on the property. Did a lot of research. Um, did a lot of probably about a month's worth of research remotely, um, and then came up here, uh, got a backhoe and, and a water drilling rig, and drilled a well and dug some test pits, did the soil analysis, and, and um, so it was a really great site, put an offer in on it, and several months later we had owned the property. This is about, uh, <laughs> this is still about 2011 okay. at the time, and uh, uh, we cleared, it cleared an initial planting area in 2012 and that was about 10 or so acres and and planted three or four acres of that and uh, we've been expanding ever since so let's back up for a minute and talk about how you two met and and also uh beth your your thoughts about this whole wine venture uh so we met in indianapolis so he skipped over 
the places he was in all those parts, but when he went to college, he moved to Indianapolis. That's where we met. Uh, and on our first date, he said he wanted to retire on a vineyard. I had no concept of what that meant. <laughs> I just pictured sitting on a pretty deck, drinking some lovely wine in some sunshine. Uh, and so then we didn't really talk about it again, but moved to Salt Lake City. That was the next place that we were. And it was in that time that he uh, was starting to look at properties and found this one on the internet, of all things. And he talked to me about it and said he wanted to come and look. And I was like, oh, I don't know. But we came and looked anyway. Uh, and then, yeah, we ended up putting in the offer, doing the research on it, buying it. And it was very different than it is now when we were looking at it and when we uh, first saw it. It was an old timber farm. The parents had passed away and left it to their kids. The kids took the value out of it and then kind of let it go. Mm -hmm. There was an old single wide at the top of the hill that was falling in on itself. And it was, it was a mess. Um, but Chris got on the property and just saw great potential. I admit, I maybe wasn't quite on board with that. But, uh, you know, he convinced me we should at least try. Mm -hmm. And so we did, obviously. And yeah, every year expanding. So starting with the original four acres of Pinot, three acres of Pinot, one acre of Sauvignon Blanc, and then expanding to now have 17 acres. And we moved to the area in 2013, but we were in Beaverton. Um, so that's the point at which he took over all vineyard management aspects. <laughs> and then 2015, we built the house up on the hill. And so we've lived out here since. So when you were when you were looking for, for land, why was Oregon specifically on top of your mind or was it just a happy coincidence that you found something in Carlton? I was very interested in Oregon and I can't really explain that. Um, I, so there's a number of aspects. One of them is very pragmatic, which is that it was affordable. Um, but uh, you know, the culture and the weather uh, was appealing, especially after living in Utah, because it's it's such a different environment than and prior to Utah, we had lived further east, you know, where it rains, for yeah, example. And it's really so <laughs> it's not a high desert. So uh, <laughs> you know, Oregon was very appealing, and and uh, frankly, Oregon has a, a very unique climate uh, in the in the world. So um, that was also very interesting. Our first trip up here was April of 2011. We came uh, just for a getaway weekend. It was my birthday weekend, and we stayed at the Abbey Road uh, bed and breakfast mm -hmm. in the silos mm -hmm. and toured around the Carlton area. And so I think that kind of helped because he kind of started looking in this area, mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as finding a place. Because I think all three places we looked at were kind of around this general area. Nothing super far away in the Willamette Valley on the edges. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. When you, uh, when you started here, uh, you mentioned potential, that you saw potential here where maybe you didn't see potential here. What about the land initially before you, maybe even before you did testing and, and, and dug in, what about it appealed to you uh, in, in its raw form? Um. <laughs> You know, so some of it is kind of an emotional aspect, but uh, a lot of it is technical. And um, 
So from the internet, if you are not on the ground, uh, you look at uh, soil maps and uh, then aspects and uh, try and find weather information and talking with people. Um, but when you're here and it was full of brush and stumps and, and uh, patches of blackberry bushes, etc., where it's hard to really see the land and you're trying to look through it and, and look at the views and, and um, the aspects of the slopes, etc. So, um, you know, I guess all of that combined, uh, I was very inspired by it. I have some great old photos. I made a photo book from when we bought the land to spring of 18. It's mm -hmm. actually in there. And it follows the whole progression. And so I have some really early photos of when we first came onto the property of, you know, him standing next to her on a stump and just very happy. At what point did you start to see the potential? Oh, I don't know, last week. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took a long time because the first couple of years, you're just you know, investing constantly. And so, and, and working and working. Yeah. And so that first clearing of the hillside, you saw a dramatic change in the property and its potential there. Uh, but every year as we clear more and expand, there's, it's more obvious, of course, at this point, we know it's a nice property, but it becomes more beautiful. Uh, whenever it's covered in brush and it's kind of a mess, you're kind of like, oh. You know, if you had come six months ago, that hillside was entirely different because it was not cleared and, and groomed and ready to go. And so every piece of land that he expands it out to uh, makes it, you know, more beautiful. What were some of the biggest challenges getting started? Uh, you mentioned a lot of work, a lot of investment. Were there, were there things that were un unforeseen about starting kind of from scratch? <laughs> The very first thing that comes to mind is the weeds. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not very romantic, but it's very, it's, it could cost a lot of money. And so, um, and I think that, you know, that's always going to be a challenge. Uh, management of the vineyard is, is costly and time consuming. Um, you know, and it's it's not really an aspect that's talked about in the wine industry very much, but you know, it's it's always a challenge. And we do so much of it ourselves now instead of bringing in crews and people, uh, and so I think that helps control some of it. But it is still, and you have to have the skills to actually do that stuff too, mm -hmm. like the land clearing, uh, the tools and the skills to actually do it. Yeah. So. But uh, we have a thistle infestation in this property that <laughs> occupies, it's constantly, I'm constantly thinking about it and I look at it and I see, okay, there's thistle over there. <laughs> <laughs> a constant battle. Yeah. Tell me about the, uh, the varietals you've chosen to plant here, obviously a little bit different than, than some of your neighbors. So uh, you start, what did you start with and kind of what have you expanded toward? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm kind of a contrarian a little bit, so, uh, which I think is a hilarious joke. I say it's only half Pinot, <laughs> but nobody else thinks it's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, we started out with about two and a half acres or so of Pinot. We had a bunch of small plantings that were all spaced out so that we can bring it up to a full acre, but the small plantings included Lagrine, um, mm -hmm. Dolcetto, 
uh, Gewürztraminer and Sauvignon Blanc initially. Um, and uh, the Pinot was Pomard, so it was all the same clone for the most part. Um, we've since expanded to uh, various different Pinot, Pinot Noir clones. Um, and kind of the justification is that we were looking to produce something that's different from everybody else. Um, and um, the grind was particularly interesting for me and continues to be because um, I have some family heritage from where the grind originates from in, in northern Italy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also such a different variety from Pinot Noir um, in terms of the flavor profile and the, you know, color and tannin structure, etc. Um, so, Dolcetto is, is, was interesting because it was a different red than Pinot Noir. Um, and Gewürztraminer, I love and I continue to love. It's, it's such a, an underrated variety in my opinion. Um, and Sauvignon Blanc is the same way though. I think it's appreciated more than Gewürztraminer. Um, but since then we've planted uh, Gamay Noir, um, four different clones of Chardonnay, uh, more Pinot Noir clones. So I think we're up to about five different Pinot clones. Um, a small planting of Riesling, which I think is underappreciated as well. And Shoy uh, Rebe, which is a cross of Riesling and Sylvaner, or thought to be a cross of Riesling and Sylvaner. Hmm. Um, That's how you pronounce that. I was, I was yeah. curious, curious about that. Yeah. We actually we have another small planting of something called Huxel Rebe. It's from the same breeder in Germany, um, but it's, it's uh, somewhat different. <laughs> just seven rows or so it'll probably be blended in how has the reaction been as you've tried to sell some of these things that are not as familiar harder to pronounce people haven't tasted before have people what have the reactions been of consumers well it's funny that you bring up the name of, like a demeanor i think is underappreciated because of the people are afraid to even ask for it it's not that they don't like it in fact they seem to universally enjoy the wine when they try it. It's just getting them to try it. They're also afraid it's going to be super sweet, but ours is in more of an off-dry style. And so sometimes you have to coax them into even trying it, but then when you do, they enjoy it. Yeah. So in any case, uh, reaction is usually very positive. Um, a number of our club members enjoy that style of wine. Um, and so they come to expect that from us. Um, but um, the what we do is, I, I think the the way to handle that, which we're moving towards, is uh, not calling it Gewürztraminer, <laughs> calling it something else. So we uh, we have a white blend that we call Cuvée Blanc. Um, last year that was 100% Muller Turgau, actually, um, but we'll be you know that will be continuing to evolve that every year so Oregon Oregon white wine and we've done really well with yeah. that one our 17 uh, won lots of awards in the local like sip it was the best of show for whites mm -hmm. we have definitely gained a reputation as having really great whites mm -hmm. uh, and now as we're kind of starting to release more reds uh, that are not Pinot 
people are coming and really enjoying those ones as well. You mentioned uh, first date, talking about retiring on a vineyard. Uh, so it sounds like sounds to me like the, the vineyard aspect was your initial initial draw. At what point did you decide winemaking also and and, and professional winemaking, no less? Yeah, so uh, that was through the Shemekita program. So we went, uh, or I I went and did all the uh, viticulture courses there, and. Um, Towards the end of that one-year track, I was approached to uh, uh, attend the wine science class at Chemeketa, and that was kind of what bridged the gap for me. And, and that was a, a very technical class that I really enjoyed, and uh, that was taught by um, Jesse Sandrock, who, uh, who said, you know, if, if you'd like, you can make the wine from the section of the vineyard that you've farmed here so that was really appealing and uh so then the next semester i went into the wine production series and after going through that it was shortly after that that i was drawing up plans for building a winery <laughs> so we have a friend that was doing some work for us on the vineyard around that time and it was what winter maybe pruning and uh, she was talking to Chris, and Chris was like, I think I'm going to build a winery. And then she came back like six months later, and it was, you know, half done or whatever. And so, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, we built the winery, he built the winery, in summer of, uh, what was it, 2016. Yep. And so started kind of early in the summer and finished just in time for harvest. And then the inside, the tasting room part, we left unfinished until winter of 17 to 18. So the tasting room only officially opened in April of 2018. Wow. So just a year ago. Wow. Tell me about the, the winemaking process and, and, and learning it and what, what appealed to you about it specifically. So a friend of mine uh, made a comment to me that you only have so many vintages in your life. And so my approach to winemaking has been to try as many things as I can at once. <laughs> and in my, in my, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and in my engineering life, I am very interested in, in, you know, parallel processing. So doing all these things, you should see me make breakfast. I make, <laughs> I make breakfast in 10 minutes. <laughs> Anyways, doing everything at once. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I, uh, um, I do a lot of experimentation. Um, I, I think I've learned pretty quickly. Um, I try and do things that other people are not doing. So, um, for example, with Pinot Noir, I am interested in trying to get more extraction than having a leaner style of Pinot. Um, and um, I am interested in trying to get as much aromatics in our white wines as we can. Mm -hmm. uh, for, and so I think probably what defines my approach to winemaking the most is experimentation and, and uh, trying something different. Was there anything about winemaking yeah. as you started learning it and now have, have, have done it? Is there anything that surprised you about it? Anything, any part of the process that you were unprepared for? 
Well, the first thing that springs to mind, I think, is is there's some aspect where you don't have control, yeah. and um, you know, I've I think through farming and winemaking, probably combined, I've I've realized that that uh, I'm not going to have control over everything, and <laughs> and uh, to be uncomfortable with uncertainty at some level. So you, you, you got the, found the property in 2011 and you, you started kind of working on it in 2012 and, and, and here you are the vineyard and the tasting room and the winery. It's a pretty fast process to kind of go all in on wine. So tell me about, about that process of sort of devoting yourself to this and, and what's the, the positives and negatives along the way. Hmm. If anything comes to mind. I can tell you we kept at least me, uh, throughout the whole process, I felt like we were at the hardest part. And it wasn't until we got to actually selling wine that now I'm pretty sure that's really the hardest part. <laughs> There's no more parts. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and so, uh, because at that point, you're convincing someone else that your product is worth their hard-earned money. Mm. Everything else was just us pouring money into it. And so at that point, you, you, and you have to take into account that everybody's palate is different. Not everybody's going to like everything. Uh, but to me, and maybe it's because that's the part I'm more responsible for, <laughs> it's the harsh part. Yeah, that is a good point. Thanks. I'm glad that's on tape. <laughs> So tell me what kind of, with that challenge, and, and now acknowledging the challenge of selling wine, tell me about how you are going about selling wine. Well, we started uh, in, so our first bottled wine was our Sauvignon Blanc from 2015. So 15 was our first vintage. We made Pinot Noir, and we made Sauvignon Blanc. Of course, the Sauvignon Blanc came out first. We started right away doing events, and our first one ever was Saver Cannon Beach, in March of 2016 and we showed up there and we had a single wine to present to people and of course we were excited I was excited because we were finally selling something and we only had like less than 25 cases of that wine total and so <laughs> I know it seems so small now uh, and so we started right away with the events and we hit as kind of as many events as we could so we started trying to get into the bigger ones, but they're hard. You have to, you know, you have to kind of serve your time before you can get into the bigger ones like Newport and Astoria. Hmm. Um, so we did smaller ones. We would show up as a guest winery at, at different places in Carleton, things like that. And we did that approach for, um, gosh, all the way, I guess, until the tasting room opened. But we were doing progressively bigger and bigger shows, shows with competitions. Hmm. Uh, our wines always showed really well. We had, I think we've had five different best of show winners at this point. Um, lots and lots of gold medals and all that good stuff, which helps bring the customers over. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, throughout that time, building on our mailing list, starting our club. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, having the tasting room has really helped yeah. with the club. The tasting room was really the, the, the game changer, yeah. I think, for us. And when we, were, when we were even debating about that, we considered our options. Do we want to do a storefront in town, either Carleton or McMinnville, uh, or do we want to build it out here? We ultimately decided to build it out here 
A, because we had some space for it, and because people love the vineyard experience. So we're a little off the beaten path. Uh, I know that. People are getting closer to us, though, mm-hmm. as more, you know, residents opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another property to the northwest that's getting the AVA extended out so they can potentially plant. So it's coming our way. Uh, but for now, we're kind of the furthest west one. People still come, though. We've done a lot this summer to get people out here. Things like the winery hunt passport, um, events practically every weekend of some sort. Basically, whatever I can think of to lure people out here. And it's worked. People come. Let's talk about those events. Obviously, you're talking, you mentioned stargazing coming up next yeah. week. Uh, what else have you, have you been uh, working on? And sort of what are the goals? Uh, obviously, you, you mentioned uh, people recognizing mm-hmm. you. But what are the other goals besides that when you have these kind of events? So we do some events that are fundraisers. And then we do some events that are more marketing to get people out here. We've done several paint parties this summer. Uh, In fact, we work with a company called Bottle and Bottega out of Portland, and they took three photographs that I took on the property and turned them into the paintings. Mm -hmm. So that's what the students make. Uh, We've done that a few times. We did um, uh, a Birds of Prey event, which was a fundraiser for an organization that rehabs these Birds of Prey and re-releases them. Mm -hmm. And so that was an educational thing where they brought out seven uh, Birds of Prey, so hawks owls, falcons, and the educators actually carried them around on their arm and talked to people and answered questions, and we did food and wine. Mm-hmm. We're doing the stargazing night next week, so we, this is our second time doing that, and it's, again, a fundraiser. They're building an observatory in Carleton, and really? so they do these road shows, awesome. the, the organization that's going to be building it, and they bring out three high-powered telescopes. We put them up in the vineyard do a lovely food and wine pairing. Uh, A professor from Pacific University comes and does a 20-minute kind of lecture. And then we go and we look through the telescopes. And so uh, it's a great way to get them a little bit of exposure and some money and to make our guests and club members really have a a lovely time. And then the new one we're doing coming up here in a couple of weeks is our first on-site winemaker's dinner. We've done several with different uh, restaurants and locations in the area. And so this will be our first one here, which we're pretty excited to try and see how it goes. Uh, yeah, but I'm a little, you know, we're doing it the 15th, 14th of September. So I'm just hoping harvest holds out because we plan to do it in the winery. <laughs> so I need that space. Because <laughs> <laughs> that makes the pick date a lot easier to choose then, I guess. Right, yeah. Well, the 15th of September is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it'll work. It'll all work out. Worst case, we can have it out here. If we have to. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, we did an interview with, with Elena Rodriguez down at Alumbra, and she okay. mentioned your your mentorship. So even though you're fairly new to the industry, you're, you're already working with other new people, new, newer comers to the industry. So tell me what, about the role as, as a mentor uh, in the industry and, and why you've chosen that. Well... Um, I didn't choose it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, no, I, I enjoy talking about wine making and, and vineyard work. And I, uh, I enjoy Elena. So, um, she is uh, very interested in it and I like to 
I enjoy talking to people that are interested in talking about the things that I talk, like to talk about. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, and she's a smart person, and so she she uh, likes to likes to hear about uh, my thoughts about winemaking. So, yeah, I think it's a good partnership. And I'm giving her what knowledge I have about how to go about selling wine. <laughs> And uh, so I'm trying to get her to come up here and be a guest winery and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do that whole thing. Because mm -hmm. that's, it's hard to get started. Mm -hmm. So. What would you consider your, your major successes so far? I know you're still fairly new to this, but what are, the, what are the biggest successes? What are the things you look back on most happily? 17 acres and vines in the ground. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one because, uh, I'm very self-critical. So I, I, um, happiness is a powerful word for me. <laughs> so I, I'm, uh, I have, my expectation is that it's, uh, uh, Starting a winery is a, a 10 to 15 year process before it becomes successful or what I would view as successful. I'm always chasing, I always have some idea of what it is to be successful and um, when I arrive at that point in my life, I don't think that I'm a success and I have some other idea of what <laughs> success is. Okay, so I have a lot of pressure on myself and uh, I'm always pushing forward. So. Um, I do have some uh, satisfaction uh, this year with how things have been going. Um, so I'm really happy with um, our wine club and how things are working with the tasting room. So, um, you know, I guess there's some glimmer of light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel, but it, uh, I guess I'm always pushing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why I hesitate when I hear the word happiness. If happiness to me means resting and relaxing, <laughs> <laughs> so I never do that. <laughs> so I'm never happy. <laughs> that was another project. It's, a, it's, it's a painful life. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a couple weeks ago. He was like, "I'm out of projects. I think I'll start clearing a new area." And so then he started on the other area where you saw the excavator and you drove up the road. Me, I feel really good when, you know, we go to a show and we get a great award. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I a good, had, good compliment to each other. I had uh, explained my views on life to uh, another individual and their reaction was something like, well, I guess that probably makes a good winemaker. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Never complacent, I yeah. guess. <laughs> well, around here, there's I don't know. always something to do. I don't know if anybody else has that opinion or not, but that's just how I'm wired, so... I'll suffer so that everybody else has nice wine. <laughs> Put that on the label. <laughs> I suffered for your wine. That's right. That's right. So uh, you've expanded a little bit every year. Uh, where do you see next? What, where, what do you see as you look into the future? You said 10 to 15 years for a successful winery. Uh, where do you need to go to get to that point? Well, so the expansion that we've done to the vineyard um, 
you know, bring us up to 17 acres or so allows for us to sell some fruit as well as make, uh, make all the varieties that I had wanted at least a year or two ago. Um, but that continues to evolve. And, um, you know, we also learn more about what sells and what doesn't. And of course that is always changing. Um, so I already have some ideas for varieties that we could plant uh, in our, you know, future growth areas, and we have probably, realistically, something on the order of seven to nine acres more that we could plant on this property before it's all the reasonably viable space is used up. Um, so that's that's plenty to manage and and would be probably enough for the lifetime of the company so um and more and we had talked about trying to uh, do all estate wines right now we buy grapes hmm. uh, all estate wines except maybe big reds so hmm. to get to that point we have to plant whatever else he's thinking in his head he wants to grow yeah so i was i've been interested in albarino um uh Zweigelt is um washington state is has uh spent a good amount of time and that seems to be growing in popularity good amount of time in that variety mm -hmm. um it's it's definitely a cooler weather variety um which seems like not something you'd want to do right now but um that was very interesting um Tempranillo, which is a warmer variety, would be a good one to try out. So, so we've progressed from about 200 cases in 2015, our first year, and then about a thousand cases in 2016 because he bought a lot of fruit, and then we've been around 3,000 kind of since then. Do you have a goal in mind for cases? 3,000 cents. <laughs> <laughs> the goal is the amount you can sell. <laughs> Once we get 3,000 club members, we'll up our case count. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I think um, it's, uh, it's we'll be seeking that value. And, and of course, that changes continuously. So um, 3,000 was probably a little bit high for early on. Um, but... Uh, we're not doing too bad as far as uh, the amount we're selling. So I think everything will settle down here in the next few years. And we might stay around three, you know, three years. That might be the, the perfect number. So tell me a little bit about, about Carlton as, as an AVA or as, as an area here. I, it's obviously grown quite a bit very quickly and you guys are, you guys are part of that. So tell me about uh, it's the perception of Carlton and kind of what you've seen from it and what you're seeing for its future. Yeah, I guess I'm less confident talking about the future of the AVA because I don't feel like I'm an authority on that. But um, I love the AVA and I'm ha happy to be part of it. It's a great organization and um, I know that uh, it's the uh, it's the envy of a number of other AVAs in the area. So. Um, I'm really happy to be a part of it. And even outside of the AVA and the grape growing aspect, the community is fantastic. So our son goes to school in, in Carleton. We participate in the fundraisers. So they do a couple times a year to support the organization. 
Uh, in fact, the Carlton Crush is coming up next weekend too. It's a big festival. Um, you know, we're, there's actually grape stomping still involved, which is fun. And so it's, it's a really good community in addition to being a great AVA. So, um, this is, the property is right on the edge of the AVA and, um, what's, uh, I generally don't talk about much, but the AVA is known for having, uh, more sedimentary soils um, and this is a pocket in the the uh, coastal range which has more volcanic soils which is more similar to Dundee Hills actually and there's a few other vineyards in the ABA that have that um, so this is a little bit unique um, and with regard to soil and the profile versus uh, the rest of VM Hill Carlton but interesting yeah so does that, being closer to the coastal range, does that also make this a cooler site than others in the AVA? Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> I have another site over there. I think that I would say that it's probably cooler at night, um, but at, during the day, I, I you would think that maybe it's the same, or in other words, a, a degree or two cooler during the day. Um, I've never had any trouble ripening anything here, though, so... But we've I, had pretty warm summers the last yeah. few, so... Mm -hmm. This year will be interesting. When we planted the site, we had gotten a lot of feedback from that this would probably be a cooler area. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't noticed that it being exceptionally cooler than any other site, though, so... <laughs> on... Um, during the winter time though you know, it'll it'll be cooler here than it elsewhere which is more obvious with snow yeah. so when we get the snow yeah so i want to broaden out just a little bit and talk about the, the oregon industry more in general i know you're fairly new to it but whatever whatever your perspective perspective is would be helpful i'm just curious in your eyes what what the current state of the oregon wine industry is what is, what is oregon wine right now in 2019 Yeah, that's a challenging question because I've been so focused on on starting up of our own brand, though when I go to the Oregon Wine Symposium, I do get this broader perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I appreciate when we go to other states and, and do sales that um, I am talking more about the broader Oregon story and, and the E.M. Hill Carlton ABA story. Um, and there's a lot of uh, education that we have to give to people just to explain Oregon mm -hmm. to them. Um, and when people are aware of Oregon, it's very helpful because, uh, you know, I don't have to give that, ex you know, they already have some perceived value in their mind of, of Oregon. So um, that's definitely helpful for us. And, and I guess... Uh, you know, Oregon has the perception of having a, a high quality product and a, and a uh, you know, higher perceived value. Mm -hmm. So, but from your perspective uh, on, on the sales end, is that what you were kind of running into as well? Yeah, we've done a couple of uh, events um, with our distributor in Pennsylvania where the people 
may or may not already know about Oregon wines, but you know the ones that know about it definitely think Oregon is a, a great place to get them. And what about for Oregon's future? What are you seeing as you look ahead? I know obviously you're, you're focused on yourselves, I understand that, yeah. but as you look ahead on Oregon's wine future in the next, say, 10, 5, 10 years, what do you see? Or what do you hope for? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what I hope for, I think, is a little bit of what, or more of what I see now. I, uh, there's a lot of excellent wines from not just, uh, from, from all of the producers in the area. The, the quality of the wine is, is very good. And um, seeing uh, more wines that are not Pinot Noir, not that there's any, I love Pinot Noir, <laughs> but uh, I love that the, uh, a lot of people are experimenting with different wines uh, and different winemaking techniques. Uh, there are some really interesting wines out there. And um, so I guess that's what I would hope for is, is more of that. And for better or worse, it seems like the consolidation is currently happening and probably will continue to happen where uh, you know the bigger California or other ones buy up some of the you know the older marquee ones in the area which to me is kind of sad but I totally get it too uh, so that I would expect would continue to happen more you said you, your first response was growth is that so you are you anticipating more growth yeah I would think so it seems like from what I know of you know the recent history, it's been growing, and so I would expect it to continue to grow, especially <laughs> as organizations, um, you know, the Willamette Valley Winery Association, the Yemma Carlton AVA, they're all getting out there and trying to help a lot with the marketing piece. So we're pretty small. We don't have a giant marketing budget to promote ourselves, you know, around the country. But those wineries that are bigger and do have the pockets to do that uh, still build a brand for the area and so it's good to have them getting out and, and doing that and then where we do events with the associations helps us what about challenges or obstacles or, or concerns as you look ahead for Oregon wine or for Yamil Carlton specifically however you're seeing are the things on the horizon that you're concerned about I think um Probably a continuous concern is uh, um, as the climate warms here that there's going to be more uh, diseases and um, more pests. So that's that's the basically the problems from places south of here will come up here. And I was thinking of it more from a financial perspective of. If, you know, there's a recession or anything like that, then it's going to impact wine sales. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm worried about the sales. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not a problem for Oregon. So well, much. but it, it is. If there's a, a recession yeah. overall, then it's going to impact. It very clearly shows where you guys' heads are in, the partic right. in this particular uh, industry. I like that. worried about the farming. <laughs> Uh, what words of wisdom would you have for someone who was interested in joining the Oregon wine industry today? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'd want to sit down and talk to them for four or five hours. <laughs> yeah, what's motivating them? No, I think it, I think it's um, 
It's a big commitment. Yeah. It's a, probably a lifetime commitment um, in terms of the amount of work, um, the dedication, uh, and uh, as we've mentioned about 15 times so far, the financial aspect of it. So. And we have talked to some people who are obviously like um, Elena, Elena mm -hmm. and some other people who are just kind of dipping their toe in and getting started. And that is the kind of stuff we bring up is that it is a lot of hard work and um, you know it takes time and effort to get a brand established yeah. if you even want to do the winemaking piece maybe you do just want to do the farming yeah. elena has been working her vineyard yeah. for a number She's of years slightly so different. That's mm -hmm. <laughs> no i'm thinking of uh the 4031 Oh, what are their names? I can't remember their names right now, but they are just, they just did their first event. Forest Grove Uncorked was their first one. And we talked to them, I don't know, six months ago or so, more than that even, um, about, you know, getting started with events and things like that. So, and we have people up here all the time that are like, oh, I so want to <laughs> do this. <laughs> it was like, okay. Yeah, that, that part of it's fun. That sitting around drinking wine and yeah. meeting people part is fun. Well, they they see the vineyard and they're like, I want to plant a vineyard. It's like, okay. <laughs> so you just talk with them about it. In, in, in lieu of all of the challenges and all of the kind of w words of war warning you would have going in, what are the rewards and benefits in your perspective to, to doing this, to that lifetime of commitment? Um, I think probably the first things that spring to my mind is that um, building a successful company, of course, has its own uh, value and with regard to um, giving something to our son, uh, if he's interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, meeting people who enjoy the wines and... Um, we have uh, a club that's growing, and and it's great to have the those people come back and and uh, enjoy the property and and uh, enjoy coming out here and having a good time. Bring the friends out and spreading the word even more. Yeah. That the wines are great, right? So making people happy with great wine. I also like uh, experimenting with the wine, so that's <laughs> a, that's a. It's, that's own, a re its own reward. That's its own reward. Is is like uh, you know trying all these different approaches and and finding something and you know what comes out of that is some style that you know it's an evolution and you know being able to actually put your finger on what okay what's my style and and that has come out in the last few years. Um, so, anyways, that's that's a feeling of satisfaction for me. Do you have a way to describe it? If you had to say what your style is, <clears throat> had to say what your style is. Yeah. So at the moment, it is uh, aromatic whites, um, and um, I'm looking for bigger reds, um, including with Pinot. So um, you know, something with uh, more body and and uh, very aromatic and uh, silky texture. So, so that's what we do in the winery is is essentially trying to accentuate those aspects of the wine. 
Okay, last question I have for you. Uh, speaking of big commitments, uh, what's the secret to a happy and successful marriage in the Oregon wine industry? Division of labor. <laughs> Tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> Letting him go outside and land clear for long periods of time. <laughs> we have a pretty good balance of, of who does what uh, in the different pieces and for the most part, I let him just go crazy in the winery, and I just request a couple little things. Uh, <laughs> and then I mostly handle, you know, the tasting room and the marketing and all that stuff. So uh, we really kind of have specific things that we handle. What she said. <laughs> I already answered the question. <laughs> like it. Come back and ask us again in 10 years. <laughs> so that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Um, kind of last last thoughts for the camera here? No. Yeah, Thanks maybe. for coming out. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. We really appreciate, appreciate this. And uh, then we'll go ahead and let you out the hook. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.